long time ago, in a state reasonably far away if you can afford air travel, a man made a film that transformed cinema. He went on to write two more that changed it again. Then he was all like, Money, 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 Jar Jar. Money, 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 gimme. Money, 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 explain the force. Money, money. The only hope for civilization is a small band of rebels known as podcasters and YouTube celebrities who now have a platform for their vengeance as long as they don't fall asleep during any Senate scenes. Many of these podcasters and YouTube supporters have already exhausted every possible angle on why these films are so bad, but now, it's our turn. You are a part of the Lucky 10,000, with your hosts, Evan, who's scruffy looking, and Carissa. I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I tell you, okay? Hey guys. Hey everybody. This is Evan. And I'm Carissa. And this is the Lucky 10,000, the episode we've been teasing now for quite some time. And before we get deep into anything, I'm sorry, should we be nominated for best episode intro ever? Uh, yes, absolutely. Should we be the only nomination for best episode intro ever? Probably, I mean, because there's no competition there, so Mm-mm. yeah. Mm-mm. In case you couldn't tell... We've been teasing it for a little while that we were going to get to that thing that everyone else has already gotten to for the last 20 years, including the people who I think did it the best, probably Red Letter Media, and that is the Star Wars prequel trilogy. But as passionate geeks, we can't not mention it if we're going to do a show like this. Yeah. And we understand that a lot of the things we're going to be talking about have been talked about before, but... You know what? I still like hearing people kind of shit on the prequels. (laughs) (laughs) And we only shit on the prequels as much as we do because we love what George Lucas created so much. Right. That it hurts when the one you love turns their back on you. Yeah. So we're not going to do it any better than some of these people did. We're not sitting here and trying to say that. Again, if you use this as a companion piece, don't – if you've never heard it, you have to go and watch the Red Letter Media YouTube videos about the Star Wars prequel trilogy. We're not going to hit it as good as that. We're not going to be as detailed as that. But we are going to have our own take on it, and that's what makes it different. Yeah. So what we've done is we've each had a separate job to prepare for this episode. Now, I had the easier job of the two. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, because all I had to do was write down the talking points for the things people don't like about what we're covering in this episode, which would also be episode one, The Phantom Menace, We're going to have to get to that name first. But um, Carissa had a bit of the harder job. Carissa, what was your job? To find the stuff that isn't bad about it. Right. Uh, Less writing to do, but more researching to do. You know, and honestly, it worked out better than I assumed it would. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear your points. Uh, Neither of us have heard the other person's list. I'm not just going to go through a talking point and say, yeah, this sucked, that sucked. I took the the, uh, take of writing down what seemed to be the top 10 biggest complaints about episode one. Can I stop you really quick? Yeah. Because there are two things that I don't want us to complain about. Okay. I don't want us to complain about Jake Lloyd. Okay. And I don't want us to complain about Jar Jar Binks sucking. 
Okay. Well, I, just, I have people to at have least touched on those. The the, everybody knows them. We're we are certainly yes. not bringing anything new to that. No, and not at it's all. It's an overblown critique, in my opinion. Okay. Well, but though that's that to me is an interesting talking point. Because the reason I wrote down what people hate about Star Wars is because I want to go down through it point by point and say whether or not I agree or disagree with that. And I disagree with some of the things that people hate about episode one. And I do think it isn't worth spending a ton of time on, but I do have just quick comments to make about both Jar Jar and Jake Lloyd. All right. But we do have a bit of a setup to do, I think. Okay. To explain how disillusioned we are and were with episode one, because we've said it before, you and I are both huge Star Wars fans. And for years, we're actually prequel deniers or apologists, apologists. Yeah, but we were we were in denial, Carissa. Well, th- I mean, that's kind of what an apologist is <laughs> a little bit. But well, we're an apology. Yeah, we're apologists now. We were deniers for years then. So let's just go back in time to 1998. When the news started coming out that episode one was coming, when I remember seeing a picture of Darth Maul in a geek magazine that my friend Shane, who is a massive Star Wars fan, showed me. And we both went, whoa, yeah, that is a villain. And then Duel of the Fates, the video came out and it just made the movie look like the best movie ever already. Yeah. If there is a class to be taken on making something bad look good. Duel of the Fates better be on that list. Yeah. Because it's still pretty amazing. I went back and watched it. And there are moments of the video now, because I know the scenes that they're taken from are awful, that I just went, oh, well, that wasn't as cool as I remember. But for the most part, it still makes you go, yeah, I want to go see this episode one. Yeah. And so we camped out at the Hollywood 20 movie theater in Greenville, South Carolina. Yes, we did. We were fourth in line. We were fourth in line. Carissa had bought the CD soundtrack. I remember after waiting all night and finally getting our tickets, driving out of the parking lot, blasting the Duel of the Fates oh, God. soundtrack. And people still waiting in line were like, yeah. yeah, it was great. It was great fun. Cut to the end of the first time we saw episode one. And what I remember is the credit sequence and music started. There was a hush over the theater until you heard the sound of one person clapping That was was me. And then everybody sort of politely joined in. It wasn't that, we're all of one mind, this was the greatest thing ever. It was a clap, 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 clap. Oh, well, I guess since somebody's clap, I guess it was okay. Yeah, we can can clap. I think we both knew at that point. Again, no movie could have lived up to that expectation. No, at that time, I was perfectly fine with it. Right, I was too. But that's because I think both of us are very loyal to the things that we love. I was, I mean, and we've talked about this before, and I've explained it to my friends who didn't understand why I was a prequels apologist for as long right. as I was, but I was, I was there. I was in the world. It's yes. fine. I'm with you. George Lucas, take me wherever you're taking me. Right. This is new territory. So whatever you're giving me is the world and I'm in the world with you. Let's go. But you know what I was, what I was thinking about is I was the same way. I would debate people about episode one and I would even say, yeah, Jar Jar Binks isn't that bad. He's a character created for children. Blah, 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 blah. And oh, this thing and that thing. And I will say still to this day, and this may be on your list, I don't know. 
it's probably the one prequel I think that feels the most like a Star Wars movie, mainly because how much time they spend on Tatooine. <laughs> Maybe it's true. <laughs> the atmosphere of Tatooine, where they actually went back to where they filmed, yeah, yeah, you know, Episode Four. That kind of makes you go, "Oh, this feels like Star Wars." But now, uh, maybe we should. Do we want to just take, you know, me addressing one thing off my list and then hand it to you for one thing off yours, or do we want to uh, take all the bad and then go to the good, or vice versa? Hmm. I, let's just do it in your order, and if either of us hasn't touched on anything we have written okay. down, we can go back. Excellent. Well, and I think it's easier to start with the bad because most people agree with the bad. However, there are some major complaints about episode one, and I will start, and these are the ones you hear the most often. And the first one is, I had to write it down, I'm sorry, Jar Jar. Now, again, I won't spend a ton of time on him because everybody knows why he's hated, but if we're talking about the two things that you explicitly said you did not want to talk about, the one thing I will say, I dislike Jake Lloyd more than Jar Jar. Yes. That was just my thing. And poor kid, I hate crapping on children that act, but especially when you watch the behind the scenes and you see who he could have cast, that's when I started going, oh, George Lucas might not know anything about film. Yeah. Because the boy he was good, he could have cast would have been, looked from his screen test anyway, incredible. But I think George is so used to having complete control now that he liked the fact that Jake would do exactly what George wanted him to do, which... If you're doing exactly what George Lucas wants you to do as an actor, it's probably not a good sign. Well, actually, part of the problem that you're talking about is kind of the reverse of that, is because Lucas is relatively hands-off on the actors. He gives really minimal direction and then just lets them go. Yeah. And if you're talking about trained actors who have been acting for a really long time, right. like most of the people that have ever been in a Star Wars movie, right. that's not really a problem. But Jake Lloyd is a nine-year-old kid who'd done like three right. commercials. He didn't know what the right. fuck he was doing. No, he really didn't. And so his and performance is terrible because he doesn't know what he's doing. And the sad thing is it ruined that kid's life. Oh, yeah, totally did. He is a complete wreck. <laughs> Yeah, and no one, I mean, I can't imagine trying to be him walking down the street now because he's still kind of recognizable. He has that face, and he was an adorable kid, but people must give him shit about that all the time. He has gone down in legend as the person that almost ruined Darth Vader at the age of nine. Yes, and if it hadn't been for Hayden Christensen, he would have been that guy. <laughs> right. But we'll get to that later. Yeah. Well, and the thing about Darth Vader, though, the thing I love about Darth Vader even with everything we know now about his quote-unquote backstory, once he puts the suit on, for the most part, he's still badass and we still love him. I still love him. Well, yeah. So it, it's, it does speak for George Lucas's original vision that he was such a powerful character that even what George Lucas tried to do to him couldn't ruin him. But we digress. Number two, uh, and by the way, Jar Jar was number one on my list. Jake Lloyd was number three. I didn't put these in order of hatred. I just wrote them down as they came to me. Okay. Number two, though, and the big one of the big problems that a lot of people have with episode one and one of the first negative things I heard about the movie upon leaving the theater is the explanation of the force. Right. That's pretty painful because for years you could always separate something like Star Trek to something like Star Wars. Star Wars is fantasy mythology. Star Trek is science fiction grounded in reality. And the Force was just this thing, this mystical thing that you couldn't quantify. You couldn't explain it away. It was just there with you. The closest thing I think those movies will ever get to God is the Force. Now, if you're a Christian, let's just say, and somebody comes along and says, you know what God is? He's like bugs in your skin. Right. That doesn't help your idea of, of a mystical being. 
it actually just kind of makes you go, huh? Your feelings on explaining the force. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, the techno babble, the pseudoscience, yes. the attempted demystification, but complete reversal of that demystification by right. adding this extra prophecy and yeah yeah no like, one ever talked about a prophecy in the original trilogy you would think if this prophecy was such a big deal everyone in the original trilogy would you know he was the guy that was supposed to bring balance to the force well yeah but at the time i mean here's maybe an, an apologist's outlook on it but by the time new hope came around and when we actually meet yoda who's the only one who strangely says anything of value right. about the past like because obi-wan just fucking doesn't right so i'm going to be cryptic now to yeah, start you on your journey which is fine but not a whole lot is said about the past so we don't know what they actually think about vader's actual transformation but, that's but if you take the first trilogy the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy and put them together to tell one cohesive story mm -hmm. something that is that important in the first half of your story gets completely forgotten in the second half of your story, that's a problem. Well, unless it's willing denial, because look how that ended up. But couldn't Yoda have said when Luke goes back to him, or when, when fucking Luke is talking to Ben, Ben's ghost, after he learns that Darth Vader's his father? Yes, he was supposed to be the one to bring balance to the Force. But you know what? He didn't. So. Yeah, they could have, although they also could have been like, we're never talking about this. <laughs> this did not happen. That was not a thing. And then they just didn't. Yeah, but Ben had no problem telling Luke about how Darth Vader was this and that and a great pilot and all this other stuff. All the other stuff that you quote unquote see in the prequel trilogy about Darth Vader. At some point, he could have been like, man, he was supposed to bring balance, man. That's why we did everything. That's why I fucked up. You know, <laughs> if I was Obi-Wan, I'd want to say that. Like, okay, my mentor was all like, this guy's going to be awesome. That's the only reason I did it, because it's kind of all Ben's fault. Well, that's certainly debatable, but... He took he took a young Anakin Skywalker who had been taken from his mother under his wing as a Jedi when he wasn't prepared to train a Jedi, and when all the other Jedi warned him that it's a bad idea. Well, technically, Qui-Gon's the one that did all that. He did, but Obi-Wan kept the mantle going. Obi-Wan could have been like, man, it sucks, Qui-Gon's dead, but... Everybody's kind of like all these other people that I'm supposed to be listening to are like, yeah, it's not the prophecy. Uh, it's not this kid. Uh, it's going to fuck everything up. I'm just going to take you back to your planet or we'll get you a good adoptive family. Hey, uh, the, the, the Veroos, the, 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 those people that live on Tatooine, they take good care of you. We will need to circle back around to this to a point that I would <laughs> okay. like to make later. Okay. <laughs> but I agree with all the complainers. Explaining the force sucked. It yeah, really it sucked. was unnecessary, and I think it removed a lot of the... The magic. The fanciful mysticism of Absolutely. that. It would be like Gandalf stopping in the middle of, you know, you shall not pass. Let me tell you where the magic comes from in my staff. <laughs> what happens is there's a centipede in there, and uh, he just kind of shoots electricity. It's really a very natural thing. You can pick one up right now, put it in a stick, have the exact same powers I do. You shall not pass. You know, that's what it does. It, there's there was a magic about Star Wars that was purposefully destroyed. And you got to wonder how he didn't know people would be upset about that. Yeah, I don't know why he why that happened. Because it was all so steeped, too, in lore and like Greek mythology and these archetype characters that, you know, you never needed to explain why Zeus did what he did because he was a god. Sure. So that hurts. So I agree. The boring Senate sequences come up a lot. 
Now, to a certain extent, I liked seeing the way the emperor manipulated the system to get the power that he wanted. But did we need all of the debating? Uh... Something that, again, was so out of character for the previous movies. And, and, you know, there's an explanation. There was no political system in the other movies. It was all the Empire. Yeah, and especially given the setting of the prequels, like the political machinations of everyone involved, Yeah, that is the story. Like the Jedi and the fighting and stuff, that's really secondary it is. to how the Empire started. But at the same time, even though that is your core story, is it a problem when it's the most boring part? Yes, it's a problem when it's the most boring part. But also, then again, how in are you? Galactic Senate, where there are that many people representing their worlds, shouldn't it take more than one person to go? Yeah, you should step down, man. No, anybody can raise a motion. <laughs> they raised a mo- I don't know. It was an interesting concept, and if Ian McDiarmid didn't play it so well, it could have been even worse. Yes, it would have been worse if the people who played it well didn't play it as well as they played it. Right, but once. We you you felt you felt in the theater every time, and I saw it three or four times in the theater. And in the back of my mind, even though I was pretending that it was very interesting, every time one of those fucking Senate seat scenes came up, the air just fell out of the room. Well, the first time I saw it, I was interested because I didn't know the story. But after that, once I'd known the story, I was like, oh, right, I know this part. Right, right. It's not like an intense courtroom drama. You can go back and watch To Kill a Mockingbird again and again because you know where it's going and there's a big, long courtroom scene, but it's still interesting and intense and dynamic. Right, but this is just very dry. Oh, God. Yeah. It's like C-SPAN instead of... (laughs) Yes. Instead of 12 Angry Men. For, For the stakes being so high in this world... There's a lot of calm. Like, everyone's a Jedi in the world of Star Wars because they're calm about everything. You know, really, honestly, Padme should have been like, no, this is not right. We can't do this. So she was like, I vote no confidence. Oh, this is how democracy ends. Huh. You know, that's the problem. There were no stakes for anyone except when the intensity was needed for a lightsaber duel or something. See, here's the thing. You talk about like how Padme behaved in the Senate as being boring. To me, that was actually, other than Ian McDiarmid, that was actually the best part. She was incredibly good at that because clearly when she's not in her queenly getup, hmm. she's kind of fiery. She, I'll get to more discussion about Padme in a bit, but well, she's I have not dry. Too. She's not boring. She's not quiet. Right. But when she's in all her queenly garb and trying to look dignified, she's a 14-year-old queen. She is. In front of a bunch of seasoned politicians trying get- to be mature. She pulled that off very, very well. Well, and I'm not shitting on Natalie Portman. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about her choices because I think her choices were dictated by the script. I am saying that a better script would have made it more interesting and more passionate, which is what it needed to be because the fate of her planet is at stake. People are dying, so she says. Yes. And I think that is when you can sort of drop the queenly visage and make something more interesting. You're out of order. This whole system's out of order. But instead you get very politically polite politician speak which we all think is the most boring thing in the world sure and they were such a huge chunk of the movie the idea is interesting but also there was something about the lagging senate scenes that took a little bit more of the mysticism out because there was always a mystery about the empire it was always just this big dark thing that controlled everything and i think sometimes seeing the pieces of that being put together take away something from it Mm-hmm. And it didn't help that those scenes were so boring. And so, like, you really felt like George Lucas just pulled a Senate procedural book out to write the script. 
instead of just going, what would make this dynamic and dramatic? So except for the fact that I do think it was very interesting through all three movies to see how Palpatine gained power and and manipulated. I agree. The Senate scenes were boring as shit. The other thing that a lot of people tend to complain about, Anakin building C-3PO. Okay. In what you would think is kind of a small thing, it actually, in the scope of the universe, turns into a big thing. And for me, anyway, created so many more questions than it could possibly answer. It was wildly unnecessary. Absolutely wildly unnecessary. And also, it takes some of the intimidation factor away from Darth Vader later in the movies because I start thinking, well, now is he really chasing these two droids for the plans? Or is he chasing the droids because he wants his C-3PO back? Is that his... uh, is that his rosebud? It really bugged me when I saw it. Yeah. And, and all this stuff I shoved to the back of my mind as I was watching the movie because I went, nope, it's good. Not going to worry about it. It was the most contrived way of making sure that some of the original cast could come back. Why did C-3PO and R2-D2 necessarily even have to be in the movies at all? It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all that R2 was in the movies. No, because that is one of the only things you can connect to the original trilogy because it is mentioned. Well, and sort of. I, have a, I have a pet theory that R2-D2 is the only droid in history to have ever been Force-sensitive. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just my pet fan theory. It has nothing to do with anything that's proven but just even based on the original trilogy and some of the expanded universe novels and stuff i love thinking that r2d2 is force sensitive it makes perfect sense but it also raises a question in that you know in episode four it's sort of alluded to in a way obviously not on purpose because george lucas can say as much as he wants that this was always planned but there's so many elements of the prequels where he just pulled it out of his ass at the last second for what he thought was fan service that the overall plot may have been something he'd been thinking about but the specifics were never there until he sat down to write them and no one said don't do that that's dumb but you know in episode four luke does say that r2 tells him that he worked for obi-wan kenobi and obi-wan kenobi says he doesn't remember it so either obi-wan's lying because he doesn't want luke to know that r2 was his Mm -hmm. or obi-wan honestly doesn't remember i mean obviously i would have to go with the former but why lie well, or he honestly doesn't remember. Because but think about it this everything way. Everything they went through, though. Think about it this way. R2-D2 is a droid. Mm-hmm. He is an astromech droid. In a mm-hmm. world where there are thousands of astromech droids that if you are a starfighter, you work with all the time. Yes. There is not really any particular reason for an aged Obi-Wan Kenobi who has lived alone in the desert for 20 years <laughs> to remember no, no no he wasn't alone he was just creepily watching luke grow up <laughs> yeah to remember one astromech droid i suppose that there's a point to that but at the same time r2 ends up being such a key part if it had just been some droid that he flew with once and then never saw again i would get that but for years r2 is with him if you go through the entire expanse of the prequel trilogy r2's right by his side almost all the time for years yeah because he's force sensitive yeah, but why wouldn't Obi-Wan remember that? I don't know. I, I think that he probably <laughs> does. Or George Lucas is terrible at writing. Well, we know George Lucas is terrible at writing. I think that's been proven now. Yeah. But, well, even then, to a certain extent, we knew there were flaws in those movies. We knew the dialogue wasn't great. Why is Empire Strikes Back the best one? Because George Lucas didn't solely write and direct the whole thing. Yeah. But I tend to think that in order to keep the mythology making some sort of sense, that Obi-Wan lied and he didn't want Luke to know that R2 was his at one point. Now you just got to figure out why. 
maybe so he doesn't know how close he was with his father, where Luke would somehow make that connection. Maybe. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But back to the original point, Anakin building C-3PO, stupid, and I agree. And actually, that was the one thing that I remember striking me as really dumb at the moment that I first saw it. Everybody kind of went, huh? Yeah. I think some people tried to pretend to be excited about it, going, oh, that's so awesome. But they were just transferring their anger and and amazement to uh, fake excitement. Yeah, that was Um, not something I could be excited about. Now, the next thing is something we just talked about. And I, even though it didn't sound like it at the time, I have always sort of agreed with you. And I think, you know, I've always said this. Natalie Portman's performance was dull. I mean, a lot of the acting in those movies was dull, but I'm picking out Natalie Portman specifically because of all the people that when you ask people who they thought the good performers were in the original prequel trilogy, most of the time, the two at the top of the list are Ian McDiarmid and Ewan McGregor. And Ewan McGregor is even debatable to some people, but Which, I thought he was those great. people are stupid. No, I thought he was great. He did such a good job of capturing a young, energetic Alec Guinness. Yes, yeah, see, that's the key point. Especially in Attack of the Clones. That's the key point. He not only played a young Obi-Wan very well as the Padawan yes. to Qui-Gon sort Jinn, where you could head. see that, but yeah. he also played, like, he was a young Sir Alec Guinness. I remember the scene in Attack of the Clones, and we'll get to Attack of the Clones eventually, but I just want to bring this up as a positive. When he's handing Anakin his, his lightsaber after he loses it, this weapon is your life. I remember seeing that scene and going, oh, my God, he just morphed into Alec Guinness. Yeah. So people usually put those guys fared pretty well. But I think a lot of unfair criticism has been lobbed at Natalie Portman in those movies. She honestly did the best any actress could have done with that material. And if she was dull in the first movie when she was the queen, it was because that is the way the queen was written. She was playing the character as it's written on the page. See, I don't. I've never actually seen anyone say that she was dull. And I thought her I performance was... I have seen a was, few people say she was dull. I thought her performance was outstanding. I honestly liked her. Because I think, for one thing, whether Natalie Portman... Even if Natalie Portman was a bad actress, the camera fucking loves that girl. So her charisma really carries through a lot. Her beauty really shines. She just glows when the camera's on her. But she also is a good actress. So I think she played that part in every conceivable way, even with the awful romantic parts in the next two movies. Well, we're not talking about them, though. I know, but I'm just saying overall, we don't have to come back to Natalie Portman because I'm saying right now she did as good as anyone could have done with that material. Uh, We're going to come back to Natalie Portman when we go to the next two movies. But for Phantom Menace, she was outstanding. I think she was very good. And I think, like I say, she she did what an actor is supposed to do. She played the character on the page. She fleshed it out as much as she could. There was, even though everyone knew, there was there was absolutely no twist to Padme being the queen. It was explained stupidly, but there was no twist to it at all. Everyone knew. And those characters were different. Yes. She was much more the petulant teenager and then had to assume this mantle of responsibility and then made the choice to continue and you know she just she did great and i don't like it when people crap on her in those movies now everyone else i mean obviously certain things aside anthony daniels and r2d2 and c3po and frank oz uh they were great but they were playing the characters we all knew that they were playing and they did exactly what they had been doing which is exactly what we wanted everyone else so dry and dull samuel jackson being cast as a jedi should be the most awesome thing ever and especially since in the context of The Phantom Menace, you never even see him pull his lightsaber. And at the time, I remember thinking, I don't know what the other movies have in store, but this is Samuel L. Jackson. He needs to be a badass. 
He needs to be cool. He needs to take out his fucking lightsaber and cut a bitch. And he does none of that. None. Not to mention the fact that what George Lucas does to his own loving creations, the Jedi in episode one, makes them seem like the homeowners association. Uh, There is an argument to be made that Lucas doesn't like the Jedi at all. They're terrible. I agree with that argument. After the original trilogy, I absolutely agree with that argument. They do almost nothing right. No, they're terrible. And The Phantom Menace was that where you're saying, oh, this is the way the Jedi work. A, they're supposed to be these peaceful monks that don't need anything, and they're living at the top of Trump Tower. And B, they just sit around and talk about everything. And where's this force guiding them to make their decisions No one wants to see a group of people who have this immense power sit around in a room and go, I don't know, should we? I don't know. You think we should? Maybe. What do you think? I don't think we'd give it a shot. I don't. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, that's that's what it that's what the Jedi amount do in Phantom Menace. Yeah. And it is awful. Yeah, they yeah, it was bad. So now we get to the next thing on my list, which were, and I picked something out specifically, but it goes through the whole movie. As much as The Phantom Menace, because a lot of it was practical, being on Tatooine things felt like a Star Wars movie in certain ways. I'm going to say the another one of the things I heard coming right out of the theater, in one of the only really exciting moments in the whole movie, the pod race, the commentators for the pod race didn't seem to belong in the Star Wars universe at all. Now, uh, Why? It felt like, for aliens, they felt very much like CNN sportscasters. And it they felt, were casting a sport. Yes, but they didn't have to do it like guys on CNN. Now, I understand this is a massive universe full of aliens of every kind. Wait, does CNN cast sports? Not CNN, ESPN. Oh, okay. It seemed a little too cheesy and a little too out of the type of world that had been established already to be in Star Wars. And there were a lot of moments like that in The Phantom Menace. Okay, but this seems like a weird criticism because the Phantom Menace especially, we had never seen this world, this universe, this setting, this place. It was brand new. So the fact that it doesn't feel like something we already know makes perfect sense because we don't know anything about it. But there's an aesthetic. It broke, for me and for a lot of other people, it broke the aesthetic of the universe that had been established up to this point. There was never a moment in the original trilogy where an alien seemed like a parody of something on Earth, especially something so blatant as an ESPN sportscaster. Hey, sports fans, welcome to the Padres, blah, 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 blah. And it just seemed out of place. It seemed like to me, a very shallow joke, just sort of, oh, we're making fun of ESPN sportscasters, where you can get away with that in some other sci-fi universes. If that was in the fifth element, I would have been like, okay, that fits the universe that has been created. It just stuck out to me. And I've heard a lot of other people say the same thing, with the exception that the pod race itself is very exciting and well done. Every time they went back to those guys, I just kind of went, oh, it's those guys again. That's a weird criticism that I had never considered. I've heard a few people say it. But that's just sort of one of many, as we go through the whole trilogy, moments that don't feel like Star Wars. I think there are a lot. But all the other aliens seem to fit. There was never another alien that I looked at and went, ah, it doesn't seem very Star Wars-y. Because even though this is a galaxy and you can do whatever you want with the aliens and everything, there's still an aesthetic that was chosen and set up in the original trilogy. And I think for storytelling purposes, you have to stick to your aesthetic and work within that. So I agree. Too much CGI. Again, Phantom Menace didn't have as much as the later movies, but there was a bit of a shudder of worry when we all saw the re-releases. Yes, for good reason. there were a lot of aliens in the background, and there was a lot of 
a lot of a lot going yes. on yep. that didn't need to be. And for a story that at its core is very simple, uh, man turns evil, his son brings him back to good. To have a lot of that fluff, to have a lot of that extra, to have a lot of things that you never quite believed were really there with the characters. And I've said it before, CGI works way better in sci-fi than it does in something like horror. Because you don't necessarily need to believe, need to be scared by something or need to believe that it exists. But for the purpose of acting as an actor on a set, for the purpose of storytelling, for the purpose of emotion, you should at least think it's there in some capacity. And once you put everything on a green screen background, yeah. when no one knows what they're looking at, when the things that you create aren't truly interacting, there were moments, I'm going to say, where Jar Jar seemed to interact with things pretty good. And then others where Liam Neeson is looking off somewhere in the West and Jar Jar Binks seems to be looking at his chin and you're just going, what is going on here? It sucks you completely out of any capability to tell a story. And why has it become that we can do everything with CGI instead of we should only do what we have to do with CGI? And I think Lucas has always been a champion of trying to push movie technology forward. He should be applauded for that. But he never stopped to say... Am I pushing it too far to tell this story? He just said, that would be cool. Let's do that. Like, I think that where there's like a line that gets crossed yes. because part of the thing, and this is one of my positive parts of mm. Phantom Menace, given that our cinematographic technology has advanced so far since the originals. Yes. In the original trilogy, the shots that didn't require a broad scope like space battles. Right. But even a lot of those were in cockpit shots. Mm -hmm. They were largely close shots. Yes. They were very intimate. They were very simple. Now we have a lot more ability to make things bigger. And yes. the movie was, while still technically a character story, was also a setting. Yes. So there were these broad, wide shots, far fewer intimate close quiet oh, shots very much so and those broad wide shots will by necessity require you know the landscape the cityscapes the starscapes and those things i think are fine to cgi because you're not going to build a city or a planet no like but that's you could fine. start with a set and a floor yeah <laughs> but when you when you get to like, hey, we're in, you know, the the warehouse before the pod race, mm -hmm. that's a pretty intimate scene between Qui-Gon yes. and Watto. Yes. And there's so much shit just yes. happening. Like, there does not need to be that much shit happening. Oh, no. It's like that whole thing of, well, there's an extra five inches down here at the corner of the screen. Put a robot in it. Yeah. Or put it to show the hustle and bustle. Of the shit-torn city in yeah. the middle. Tatooine. And that's just not necessary. If you need to have shit on, like, in the background with this intimate scene going on, have extras walk by. Yes. Like, you don't need to digitize your whole fucking movie. Yeah. How many little fucking robot servants did Watto have in that shop? And the other problem is, since Liam Neeson didn't know when they were filming the scene that anything would be going on around him. Oh, yeah, he doesn't react. No, nothing. Like, Man, there's nothing here. And I and there is something to be said for, well, of course, that's just the way things go. Sure. He doesn't get rattled by a bunch of robots running around. But at the same time, every once in a while, I look down like, what was that? Oh, it's that little robot. Would have added so much to at least believing the situation. Now, obviously, there were some times where I thought it really worked. I did honestly enjoy the whole underwater sequence when they were in the, the ship and trying to get to Nebraska the monsters and stuff that were down there that's when you can go look what we can do yeah because that is kind of an adventure part 
of yeah. the movie. Yep. We're, we're sailing into the unknown where all these creatures are and anything could eat us at any point. And seriously, that. but like you go and here's kind of a really good example of what I'm talking about because you're underwater and you have this entire huge planet spawn, yes. planet spanning ocean that you're cruising through. And yes. there are all these weird creatures and rock formations and coral and all this stuff. That is fine to CGI. CGI the shit Absolutely. out of that. When you go inside the cockpit, fucking bring it down. Yes. Stop doing that. It's just yes. three dudes in a cockpit. Like, that's all yes. I need to see. I don't need the rest of this lighting and shiny things and stuff floating. In the- just show me. Yeah, I don't need seat. to see the creatures swimming behind the, the window of Qui-Gon's head because the whole time I'm not going to be listening to him. I'm going to be going, what's that swimming around behind Qui-Gon's head? And we don't need any shaky cam for any you. of that. Just Just show me the scene in the cockpit. Let them talk. Let them get me the story that they're trying to get me and show me the characters that they're trying to portray. And then zoom out when the big creature comes and attacks the ship and make it all CGI. That's fine. That's fine. And think about it in terms of theatrically. Yeah. If you were to mount a play, say you're doing a scene from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and in the middle of all this great, crisp, mammoth dialogue and wonderful performances, midgets in helmets were just running around climbing on their desks and stuff, and they paid no mind to it. Would you have any idea what was going on in the scene? Uh, no. And that's the problem. I don't think George Lucas ever stopped to think about the story in those moments. Every time he saw an empty space of frame, he would tell one of his guys, fill it up with something. Do something there. Yeah. There's nothing going on. When you get to Coruscant, I understand it's supposed to be this huge bustling city. But how there aren't flying cars banging into each other constantly and exploding in a ball of flame, I'll never understand. Well, I because mean, there was so much junk in the frame. Technically, it's because they follow traffic laws the way we do. Yeah, but there's so much going on. I mean, you look at a busy highway and at first you think, my brain almost can't comprehend how much movement is coming on. And then you kind of get adjusted to it. You can't get adjusted to what's going on in Coruscant because there's just too much. Well, I mean... Maybe as a viewer you can't, but like if you're in the world, you totally can. It's just traffic. It's just traffic, but at the same time, my point is being that there's just so much of it. There's way too much look at what we can do with computers as opposed to actually setting a mood, which is a huge problem because the feel of it should be different, not just the look. Well, I mean, and when all I can is, think of is that's a shit ton of stuff flying around. There is something to be said, especially for Coruscant, that that is necessary for the mood. Because I think, I think he could have I think he could have scaled it down a little. I, I don't. For Coruscant specifically, I don't because it's the city planet. I don't know how much expanded universe stuff you're familiar with. I mean, I know that Coruscant is a huge city planet, but at the same time, I always felt like there's so much going on, especially since it's all CGI, that nothing felt grounded or real ever. And having a city where there's always something going on outside the window, it's the same problem we've been talking about. You set that up, and then you have to stick with it. And when someone is trying to have a conversation, you're looking at all the shit flying around outside the window. I had the least problem with that on Coruscant specifically because it's a city. It makes more sense in Coruscant than anywhere else. I still think it was just a hair too much. That's my point. Hmm, Okay. Um, And now we move on to nonsensical plot and pacing. If you really dig into the plot of the entire prequel trilogy, there's a lot of, why did they do that? Why didn't they just, how come they, and a lot of times, we talked about this before, we can understand plot holes in a movie. 
we can go with it as long as the story sucks you in. And a big part of that is pace. If the characters don't believe the situation is important or urgent, you won't as an audience member most of the time. Right. And the pace is so, here's a story, here's a story, action sequence, here's a story, 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 action sequence, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, four battles going on at one time. And there was no flow to it. It just seemed like, Here's a character. Here's a chunk of shit. Here's what you need to know. Boom! Here's was, some more stuff. Here's another person. Here's what you need to know to understand kind of what's going on. Boom! And when that happens, you have a lot of time to sit and think about what people's motivations are and try and figure out why. It is. Uh, it has a large quantity of exposition. I do not. Or I, that's not oh. debatable. Most of the movie is expository. Oh, my God. And that's normally something that I don't like. And this isn't really much of an exception. I don't really like exposition. You shouldn't because there's a way to, t I mean, one of the hardest things to do as a writer, I think, is to make exposition interesting. To make it but, part of the ongoing story. Yes. Yeah. As opposed to this character would inform the audience as to what's going on this way that makes sense with this character. As opposed to everyone just doing their part and saying, well, what we should do is. Right. It's almost the same as someone turning to the camera and going, okay, here's what's going on. And there were a few things that didn't quite make sense. One of the biggest things to me, because I'm not always the best at searching out plot holes, because a lot of times I will just go with the story. Right. But I remember even watching it the first time when the Trade Federation is surrounding Naboo with all their ships because this is an integral part of their plan, a blockade. We're going to stop people from getting into this planet and trading. Yes. And then when they have to escape, all those ships are gone except for one who's just going to hang out. They never would have gotten across that blockade if there was more than one ship. It was almost like George Lucas, for the CGI shot, went, we need a bunch of ships. And then when he realized they had to get out of the planet and he wasn't creative enough to think of another way for them to do it, went, oh, there's no way they would make it out of this blockade with all these ships. Uh, um, let's just have the rest of them leave. Trying to remember the timing on this. When they leave the first time, they have already gone down to the planet. Like yes. they've sent their battle droids to the and planet? And the big silver ship. Okay. So here's my explanation for that. But, but okay, you shouldn't have to make up an explanation. No, no, it. this isn't a made-up explanation. This isn't like a fan theory. This is like an explanation. Because most of those ships had gone down to the planet. But no, I'm talking about the big circle with the thing around it that, control that all the ships left out of. Yeah, there weren't that many of those. The capital there were more ships? Than one. Yeah, the capital ships. There was more than one. Yeah, so when all of their non-capital ships went to the planet with all of their battle droids, however many remaining capital ships were in space around Naboo would spread out. But that's a lot of machination to get to the point where that should have been explained more clearly. And that's what I mean. Clarity never seemed like a big part of George Lucas's concern. I mean, or they, their captain, their pilot, whose name always escapes me, but is awesome. The pilot went toward the one place where they could get out of the atmosphere by passing only one capital ship. But aren't they trying to stop anyone from getting in or out of the planet? Well, at that point, no, they're trying to take over the planet. Forcibly, yes, with and arms. wouldn't you think that keeping their forces surrounding the planet to stop anyone coming in would be a priority? 
no military was coming in. They would have no reason to defend against a military coming into Naboo. But to me, the whole fact that we're having this discussion means there was a problem. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like you're inventing a problem. I'm not. Uh, again, I'm going off of what I've also heard other people say. These were things that I wasn't like, I'm the only one that thinks this. This is an issue. A lot of other people have said the same thing. There seemed to be things that happened in the movie for no logical reason. Why... How do the, how does the entire robot military get to Naboo before Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon when they were aboard the very ships that were going to Naboo? And why did the ships park so far away from Naboo to get to Naboo when they knew the people didn't have any defenses? What were they doing that was killing all these people that you never see die? None of those are plot holes. I think they are. Those make perfect sense. Like, this how? isn't even like I have to work to explain any of that. Really? Yeah. How? Okay. Okay, so Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon go down the ventilation shafts and they come upon the ships that the are loading up all the yes. battle droids. They stow away on them. They stow away on two of the however many hundreds of ships they land on the planet. But they were able to cross through the core of the planet to get to Naboo. They were on the other side. They landed on the other side of the planet. Why would they do that? They're just trying to take over Naboo or the city, whatever the fuck it was called. Right. So if they're trying to get to the city where the queen is and they know these people cannot fight them very effectively, why land on the other side of the planet and then have to travel achingly slowly to get there? They don't land on the other side of the planet. They land somewhat far out of the city so that they can amass troops because that's warfare. You don't land in, order in the middle to get of the city. The, in order to get to the city, they had to go through the core of the planet. What's his face says it? Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon had to go through the core of the planet from Gungan City, which they Why had to you... go to Gungan City to go from to get to the capital. They were right at Gungan City when they first found each other on the planet. No, they were nowhere near Gungan City when they found each other. Well, the ships were also no. So why go to Gungan City to because find the thing? Because that's where Jar Jar took them. Yeah, to get to the city. No, to get help. To go defend the city. No, they needed to make contact with either Padme or the Chancellor. They can't do that by going into the middle of a battlefield. So they went away from where all the army was amassing. To Even though they could take out the androids easily to a Gungan city on the other side of the planet to go through the planet core to get to the city that they were close to when they landed and they walked there. Well, they swam to the there Gungan technically. City? Yeah. See, that still makes no sense to me. Okay. Either way. I'm sorry that doesn't make sense to you. Either way, if we can't agree on the plot, we can at least agree on the pace. And the pace was so hackneyed and didn't suck you in the way a real story should. And then when you get to the end, it felt like there was that there was that long lull in the middle where all this Senate stuff was going on. So that Lucas, I think, felt like he had to throw four things, huge things going on into the last 20 minutes in order to make up for that lull. And to be totally honest, some of that was really awesome. I mean, the lightsaber duel itself was really awesome. The The fight with the droids and the Gungans, I always kind of liked. Yeah, it's The great. design aspect of the ships and the way they bring the droids out and everything was pretty cool. But there's also that whole thing of by the time you get invested in one battle or one thing that's going on, you're immediately switched to another one. Then you're immediately switched to another one. Then you're immediately switched to another one. They did that in the original as well. They did it in the original, but not nearly as, as much not nearly as many different things going on. Uh, you no, should in... go back and watch them again because they kind of did. 
Not as much, though. Not as quickly. In Jedi, they had the battle on Endor, the battle with Luke and Vader, and then the the ship battle outside. Yep. And all that was playing directly into everything else. To me, when I watched Phantom Menace, the battles, even though they were all battling for the same reason, seemed very segmented and isolated from each other. And it bothered me because I wanted to see more of this thing going on over here and then immediately got taken to this thing, which didn't have nearly as much drama. I think that this is something that I agree with. I think the, I don't know, the cut timing was not as good as it should have been. It was been. not great. But the having the three different battles going on at the same time is exactly how Star Wars movies end. So that at but, least is not different. But there were four of them. And the thing about what was so, because every time I go back and watch Jedi and see Luke wailing on Darth Vader, I get a little teary. But that's also because he is watching his friends die. He is watching these ships get destroyed. He, he is believing at this point that his friends down on the planet are going to be killed and that this has all been planned. And that's why, to me, those battles strung together so much better, and it just felt more organic. Whereas this one, I could have done with just the Gungan battle and the lightsaber duel, to be totally honest. And I think it would have been great. Because we could have both used... Because there was more drama to those. There well, was more, the, the there space was more battle, at stake. The space battle did not take up all that much screen time. But constantly cutting to it, especially when the person that you're supposed to care the most about is the kid that no one likes... Really I think they only ever cut. Involved. I think they only ever cut to the space battle three or four times. Like that's it. In the middle of the three or four times they cut to Padme getting up to the throne room. In the middle of the three or four times they cut to the lightsaber battle. In the middle of the three or four times they cut to the Gungans. It was. I think it was too much. I think it was unnecessary. Okay. Took me out of the story. Last thing. Last biggest complaint uh, from a lot of people about Star Wars is the dialogue. Which has always been an issue in Star Wars. Let's let's not oh, pretend God, yes. it's, it's oh. not. But I think when there's no dynamic to the story, it really isolates those problems so much more. I think when there's no when the story and everything hasn't completely pulled you in, because I don't remember watching Star Wars with a few exceptions, the original trilogy and going, well, that was dumb. Why'd they say that? Or that's a stupidly put together line because there are so many other things that seem to to compensate for that. So you, you almost didn't notice it. And I think so many people rail about the dialogue in Phantom Menace really highlights the fact that it stood out because all that other stuff wasn't there for a majority of it. Yeah, like the fact that they had kind of, I don't know, the this is day to day life sort of uh, scenes that were right. just kind of slow and boring would be fine. We mm -hmm. don't, as an audience, we don't have a problem with those. Yeah, watching sorts Luke of on, his, on his farm when he's yeah, bored. exactly, exactly. But the dialogue and the lack of direction for those scenes makes what would otherwise be a nice little slice of life picture into just kind of like a okay, good, yeah, you're having right food, good. <laughs> don't give a shit about right. your random gambling people on the right. planet. Like none of this matters at all not this to is mention boring. the fact that when you get to the point where everyone should be really stressed and concerned and dramatic they're still treating it like just another slice of life yeah and that hurts that is where you really see weak dialogue come through because yeah. the actors can't make it lively no so you're just sitting there going well that was a stupid thing to say i know i've got one little extra thing that okay. is a bitch personally of mine is when I think some filmmakers are lucky enough to land that thing that everybody latches onto and loves. I think it's a real sign of ego 
to then feel like they have to give nods to their previous work all the time. Such as? Greedo showing up in Phantom Menace. Oh my god, right? Yeah. Um, There was no reason for that. Jabba the Hutt really being there. There was no real need for that. I mean, I'm okay with it, but it's not. You're right, it wasn't necessary. But there are so many things... Obi-Wan Kenobi, meet Anakin Skywalker, and he and the kids shake hands. It's kind of like, okay, well, we know where the story is going. We don't need Qui-Gon to almost look at the camera and go, they're meeting, guys. And you know what? If that had been done better, it actually could have been a very impactful moment. Could have been. But it wasn't done well at all. Right. And so it just ended up being like, that's not something people say. Right, exactly. Now that we go back to the bad dialogue. Yeah. No, I've, I've never had that happen non-ironically in my life. Yeah. It's usually, hey man, this is my friend Brad. Hey Brad, what's up? Hey man. And I'm not saying that's the way it should be in Star Wars, but it shouldn't be, oh, here's the boy. Oh, here's Obi-Wan. We should make them meet. Obi-Wan Kenobi, meet yeah. Anakin Skywalker. Right. <laughs> that's where you're kind of like, why'd you say it like that? Just, hey, Obi-Wan, this is Anakin. We're taking him with us. Oh, yeah. all right. Or even just... Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Like, there doesn't need or to be a just, meet. Just Obi-Wan, to... this is Anakin. Yeah. I think the fact that they also had to say both of their first and last names yeah. was like George Lucas going, this is a big deal, guys. And we're like, we all know it's a big deal. We all know the story you're trying to tell. You don't have to go, this is a big deal, guys. Yeah. But to me, the other one, we, we already mentioned it, but I have to go into more detail about it. Greedo should have never been in that movie. Yeah. Little Greedo, who does something stupid, and then having one of the kids going, you got to watch out, Greedo. Yeah. Karma's a bitch. Yeah. Why is that there? I don't know. And, and it's full of those things. Well, C-3PO being in the movies at all. Yeah. Is George Lucas going, yep. wasn't that a great character, guys, that I created? Don't you love him? Here he is. There's no point for him being there. R2, you can make a case for. Yes. C-3PO, there's really none no. to be made other than, all. we just want to get these guys back together. Well, why don't you have an equivalent of C-3PO in the movies? Or Which also not, wouldn't be necessary. Which also wouldn't be necessary, but I would have accepted it more than actually C-3PO. Because, you know, everyone loved the bickering between those two, but then it just became forced, and they had to find ways to stick it in there when they're both there because people loved it in the first trilogy. Yeah. So those are my big bitches about Phantom Menace. And there are others, I'm sure. But we've been shitting on it now for a long time. Yes. Let's get to the positives. Uh, let me shit on it a little more. <laughs> okay. Mine are a little bit more, like, specific sure. things, maybe. Maybe they're also more general. I don't know. Anyway, sure. Shmi. Oh, yeah. She, She's not great. Oh, my God. Her whole place there is so overly melodramatic, like oh, yeah. needlessly, complicatedly, ridiculously overly melodramatic yes. that it robs her of any authenticity. Absolutely. Completely. Well, and, you know, the immaculate conception no, of no, Anakin Skywalker. This is a mixed for me because it okay. is dumb. I agree with you. It is dumb. However, it is the prelude to both the Jedi mythos of the Chosen One who will bring balance to the Force, and also the Sith mythos, which is covered in Episode 3, which I will totally gush about when we get to our Episode 3 thing. Yeah. So, like, while itself is dumb, it has a purpose, so I can't say it's all bad. Right. I think there would probably have been a better way to make that convergence viable. But you know what? That is so much of what the underpinning subtext of what we're saying is. There yes. were things that could have worked had they been handled differently. Yes. And, you know, even 
I still think that somebody like Spielberg is a great filmmaker, but Spielberg falls into his own traps very regularly. And one of the things, I was just talking about this to a friend the other day, once Spielberg starts to get sentimental, I'm out. Almost all of the time. Okay. I love the movie Hook. I always will. But there are moments that are so full of that Spielberg sentimentality, I almost have to turn my head when they come up. Okay. I believe in you, Peter. I believe in you. I so was with the movie The Terminal. Have you seen that movie? Yes. With Tom Hanks? I was so with it until the last 10 minutes. Yep. When he leaves the terminal and everyone applauds. Yeah. Those are the overdone Spielberg moments that to me don't ruin him as a filmmaker. I still think he's a brilliant man and I love most of his movies. Lucas is such a victim of that too, though trying to just wring the tears out of you when Anakin has to go back and hug his mother. And that is never going to work because she is not believable and he is Jake Lloyd. Right, exactly. And where? why doesn't he have an accent? All he's ever been around are aliens and his mother, who sounds like she's something? Uh, that one girl with the braces... <laughs> Also doesn't have an accent. Yeah, but who was her parent? You know, I mean, we can at least say that her parents talked like regular people. Shmi has a definite accent of something. And I forgot about the fucking braces. You know, for slaves, they have quite a good orthodontic program on Tatooine. Yeah. And yeah, it's that whole Lucas cuteness because he's a he's a man child. He's got the heart of a child. And that's great. But kids don't make good movies. And sometimes, again, you know, I think one of the problems with all the prequel trilogy is that as opposed to the original trilogy, there was no one looking over George's shoulder and going, that's not going to work, man. This yeah. is dumb. Yeah. So I agree with you completely. Shmi okay. should have worked and didn't. Yeah. And that also made it much, much more difficult to give a shit about oh, absolutely. Anakin at all. Absolutely. Okay. So those were my, I guess, the two that I hadn't. Oh, no. Okay. okay. My last two. All right. The weird, weird is not the right word. The creepy prepubescent romance. Oh, yeah. Like, Padme, at the point when she and Anakin meet, is effectively like a surrogate mother at that time. Yes. Like, she's 14 and he's, what, what, eight? Yeah, 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. She can't be a sexual object to him at all. No. And it's weirdly Oedipal and it's Very. very out of place. Because we all know how this ends. Like, from right. minute one, we know how this ends. And that's a major problem. With and knowing where it's going to go, it makes those little moments between them so much more than they're supposed to be. And creepy. Yes. It's creepy. Like, yes. we can talk about the way that Anakin and Padme get along in the other two movies with <laughs> the adults. Oh, yes, but when he's eight creepy. and she's 14, or however the hell old they were, not sexually active or considering one another as sexually viable, that's creepy. Right. They present her as more of a big sister. She comes across the way Natalie Portman portrays her as more of a big sister than anything else. But what is the first thing he says to her, which is one of those great examples of awful Lucas dialogue? Uh, Are you an angel? Are you an angel? Which is almost like doesn't help the creepiness because that's almost a line a guy would use in a bar to hit on a woman. Yeah. But so because she literally can't be a romantic interest to him because he's prepubescent. Right. And he has just lost his mother. She right. says she is an immediate surrogate mother. Yes. And then and why they... does he have to set up the romance in The Phantom Menace? Exactly. It's creepy. Why can't he just, you know, because apparently what we learn later is that Anakin was in love with her the first moment he saw her and has stayed in love with her. Why can't it just be they meet up again later and he's like, dude, now that I'm a mature adult yeah. who has understandable sexual feelings, yeah. she's pretty hot. Yeah. Anyone could see that. Yeah. If I met Natalie Portman at eight and then saw her again at 15, 16, whatever, I'd be like, dude, I didn't realize how hot she is. Yeah. 
But no, they got to they he has to establish it then. Which is it's just creepy. It's creepy. Oh yes. Like that's really Very creepy much. to me. And uh, my last actually negative one is just the, you know, casual racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, I forgot to write that. I can't believe I forgot that. So according, you know, to, the racist. Menace, according to the Phantom Menace, Asians are stupid cowards. Uh, Jamaicans are stupid bottom dwellers, but they'll fight with you. Yeah. Um, Italians are greasy money grubbers. What else? Are there any I'm missing? I don't think so. The English are pretty much all evil. Well, yeah, but that's like that's a trope in every movie, and we're all okay with that. Yeah, we're fine with that because they're not technically a race as far as skin color or anything like that. Right. That is more of a cultural thing than a blood thing. Well, and I mean, honestly, they're at least for Americans, other than Nazis, the English are the last group of people that we can safely yeah. put in a villainous place and not right. worry about somebody. Because they don't really care. Offended. They don't so, care. Such a world power. They're like, ah, fuck you, Yank, whatever. But yeah, um, even the, the, the costuming and the gadgets. What is the one alien at the beginning? We lost our transmission, sir. Yeah. They had to give her a slit eyed mask to wear. <laughs> Yeah. Who came up with that? And wasn't there anyone on set that went, she sounds pretty Asian. Maybe we shouldn't make her eyes look so Asian. Yeah. Oh, uh, there was one you forgot. Uh, Watto. Oh, yeah. Very yeah, well, the Italians. That's He was kind of a Guido. Vaguely, wasn't he? vaguely some combination Middle East slash Italian. Oh, you know what he was? He was Persian. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And he was a money grubbing scumbag. Yeah. A poor, fat, ugly, money grubbing scumbag yeah. with a with a with a deflated penis for a nose. But hey, the movie was a hit all over the world. Yeah. Okay. So those were my major. Um, all right. Bad now points. let's celebrate the man a little because regardless of what we think of the prequels, he did give us Star Wars. Yeah. So what worked in the Phantom Menace, Carissa? Uh, okay. So the big one, the huge one that worked. Seriously, the duel at the end is fucking awesome. Oh, it's great. Like. I guess it's a truel, technically, since there are. Well, I've heard a lot of people complain about it just because they felt like, even though it was fancier and flashier than other duels, it didn't have the same dramatic weight. I kind of disagree with that. Oh, I totally disagree with that. If you were to cut it down, and there used to be a supercut on YouTube several years ago, I don't know if it's still up or not, of oh, just yeah, 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 the fight yeah. scene. Yes. It's awesome. It's, it's great. It is very compelling. And the reason maybe, perhaps, that some people don't agree with that is because the cuts to the other action sequences were poorly Maybe. timed. Maybe. Because even though the uh, lit lightsaber duels in the original trilogy weren't nearly as expertly choreographed, I think a lot of people were saying there was more weight to them. I don't know. At this point in The Phantom Menace, you hadn't seen a ton of lightsaber battling. Right. You'd seen a lot of light of lightsabers slashing through robots like butter. Right. But this is the other thing, too, what I do enjoy about that scene is that it finally showed how intimidating anyone who has a control of the force is. Yes. Because at that point, the Jedi are just kind of there and fighting people that are so outmatched by them. It's not even an effort. And then that door opens and that entire army goes, we'll go another way. Yeah. That was when you're finally like, oh, these guys are intimidating and badass. Yeah. As they should have been through the entire movie leading up to that point. Like Darth Maul is no Darth Vader, mm -mm. but he's pretty fucking badass. He's like, the best villain in the entire prequel trilogy. On first viewing. Oh, he God. Was, he was righteously badass. It was yes. incredible. And of course, it was choreographed by Ray Park, who knows his shit. It's brilliant. And they were really doing it. Yes. It was It was really good. Was it Ewan McGregor that got in trouble for making the noises? 
You know, I've heard people say Ewan McGregor. I think it was Hayden Christensen who said that he got on set and started making the noises and George Lucas told him to stop. But I don't see how anybody could do that without making the noises. <laughs> I couldn't. I just think that's hilarious. I played Star Wars games and where the sounds are right there for you and been going. Yeah. Wah, 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 wah. You, yeah, that's what you do. That's what okay. we all did. Yeah. Uh, Give me a okay. broom handle. I'm a fucking Jedi when I was five. So two real quick things I don't like as much about the fight scene. Okay. One is when they when the three of them are separated and yeah. they're running through the red shifty portal thing. I think things. I know what you're going to say and I think I agree. <laughs> so Darth Maul and Qui-Gon are engaged in melee battle and they're, yes. Darth Maul's moving him back toward this hole right. through these gates. So they're actively fighting, but they're not in each other's faces which is why they get separated and obi-wan had been kicked off a ledge and he was falling behind so he was way back on the catwalk now i know it had been about an hour and a half since this happened but (laughs) not that long ago like about an hour and a half or so (laughs) we saw both qui-gon and obi-wan able to just fucking book it at yes nearly speed of light speed which at the first time we saw it was fucking awesome we'd never seen a jedi really do that before and we never see them do it again <laughs> not when he's running after this dark right. the sith lord who's trying to kill his mentor or anything like why didn't you just speed run your ass up there and right. chop him in half from the back like what is right. why are you just jogging what's wrong with Maybe. you Maybe they were going at that pace through the whole fight, but they had to slow, slow it, it down, down so that we could tell what was going on. I would be willing to accept that. <laughs> I would. I really would. The other thing is that when Obi-Wan finally cuts Darth Maul in half, yes. the camera is on Darth Maul's like, nipple to head. Right. And there's this spray of red mist. Yes. As the lightsaber, the lightsaber. Yes, yes. I never thought about this, but you're right. Cuts through his midsection. It should be cauterizing him. It's cauterizing it. It never, ever bleeds. Ever. Like, that's the point. You never see anyone bleed when they get... Although, in the first movie, when Obi-Wan cuts that alien's arm off, you see some blood coming out of it. But every other time... Yeah, but... Every other time someone loses a limb, it's completely cauterized. Yes. And that's how it is explained. Like, in any of the Expanded Universe stuff, in any of the fiction, non-fiction write-ups about it, lightsabers don't let you bleed. Right. That's a very good point. I never thought about but that. But there is this yeah. red mist all yes. over the camera. Yes. Which, if you, like, I care about little details. I was in the world, but that little detail bugged me because lightsabers don't spray blood. That's true. That's a very good point. I, that never bothered me until now. Sorry. <laughs> I'll tell you what bothered me about that section, though. I thought you were going to say something else. What the fuck are those red things for anyway? Oh, fucking, they're shield. <laughs> beam who gives a shit there's also i always tried to justify it by saying it was some sort of filter system because they're near a reactor or something yeah because really in the whole space of like sci-fi it's a hole that doesn't serve any purpose guarded by several laser gates yeah that even a jedi can't get through yeah why are those things there who gives a shit i don't know because it's (laughs) the future or a long time ago or whatever okay (laughs) so lightsaber duel at the end i think most people agree and positive one of my favorite parts of it. And really made it exciting again. That's why I think the cuts bothered me so much. Because the Gungan battle and the lightsaber duel were the most exciting things at the end of the movie. Oh, that's and, not what I was talking about. Well, I'm just saying, generally speaking, like the, the, the lightsaber battle, no matter, regardless of what you thought about the rest of the movie up to that point, everybody got pumped when that happened. Sure. Well, one of my Their favorite parts of it racing. is after uh, they get to the laser gates. 
and uh-huh. they close to separate all three of them and they're all standing there. Uh-huh. That section while they are waiting yes. is one of my favorite parts of the it's whole neat. fight it's scene. It's really cool. Darth Maul is pacing and make and mugging. Me uh-huh. mugging at Qui-Gon. Like, yeah, come get some, bitch. Do you want some of this? It's yeah. just cool. It's just posturing. Qui-Gon is calmly meditating. Yes. And Obi-Wan is gearing up. Yes. And like, also pretty scared. Yes. Like that scene with no dialogue and Ray Park made up to the nines. Right. Is the, like some of the most character we get. Absolutely. It's just and in those moments. That might have been one of those moments that got rewritten in the script because in George Lucas's original script, I think there was dialogue there with Darth Maul going, I cannot wait to kick your ass when these gates go down. <laughs> and Obi-Wan going, I am going to sit here and meditate. I mean, and Qui-Gon going, I'm going to sit here and meditate. And Obi-Wan going, man, I hope I can make it through these gates to save my master because I'm worried he may be outmatched. Yeah, but I loved that moment. I thought it was I also loved the fact good. that they turned their lightsabers on before the gates opened. They just knew, they just knew. because they're Jedi. Yes. And Sith. Yes. And that was the kind of thing where you're like, George, if the whole movie could have been this, it would have lived up to all of our expectations. Yeah. Okay. So uh, speaking of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Yeah. The look, like you you mentioned earlier that the big twist that the Queen and Padme were the same right. person wasn't a twist or whatever. Right. But of course, it was sold to us that way. Yes. Like whether you bought it or not is right. a different thing, but that's how it was sold. What I do like about that scene, though, is that when she says, this is my loyal bodyguard, mm-hmm. there is a look between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan yeah. that is both very meaningful and hilarious. Right. Be- and fuck? it's brief. <laughs> it's very, it's just tiny. And the two of them worked that out between them through chemistry or whatever, but they were just like, oh, no shit. <laughs> it's like it was just perfect it was just a perfect little moment uh, between but, two great actors and i thought yes. that was amazing the problem one of the other problems too though with the movie is that they separate them so much yeah um the other problem is when you make a character that is supposed to be like a jedi and is supposed to be as all-knowing and all-powerful as a jedi then in order to surprise those characters you really have to paint yourself into a corner because what george lucas had to do through most of the prequels is make the jedi way dumber than we thought they were going to be like i just kind of feel like if they were as good as we were supposed to believe that they were they should have caught wind of something not being right with padme and with a lot of things yeah but because like whenever you make an all-powerful character like that then you have to find those vulnerable spots because you can't move your... He basically said in the first trilogy that they can see the future. To a limited extent, yeah. To a limited extent. And they never do that in the prequel trilogy, ever. They never uh, stop and go, what's going to be the outcome of this? Yoda does. Well, he still gets his ass fooled. Yes. A lot. And these are not just one or two Jedi. This is an entire council of the most powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing beings in the universe who really don't know a shred of what's going on. Well, a lot of that is because of Palpatine. That is true, but is his reach that far? Is his reach to Tatooine? I mean, it's 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 hard to buy this, the Jedi being surprised by many things. And that was, I know the moment you're talking about, and it is a funny, cute little moment, but it always, always made me stop and go, how could they not know that? Yeah. But I don't want to shit on the positives you're bringing up. Okay. We're trying to be fair. Uh, so kind Continu- of speaking about that, uh, Padme, the character. Mm-hmm. Like, just take the character. 
She mm. is seriously badass. She is pretty cool. In The Phantom Menace. She's wise beyond her years. She's incredibly mature. She's both tactical and strategic. She's really mm-hmm. brave. She is very confident. Even even in her momentary lack of confidence yes. moments, her overall view of the world is incredibly confident. She's one of the true good characters of the original trilogy. Yes. Of the prequel trilogy. Of The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. This will be a different topic when we bring up the other two. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And I guess my last really good one that I think, I don't know if it's overlooked or not, but I don't see a lot of people talk about it, but is actually something that I have always held true, even like when I was an apologist and then when I stopped being an apologist and now when I'm just kind of like, okay, here's the movie. Right. Uh, Sebulba's Pod Racer. Oh yeah, it was cool. It is earnestly sinister. It is a way, way better job as a nemesis on an appropriate scale than yes. Sebulba himself. Like, Sebulba himself is just ridiculous. Yeah. His pod like, you know, is fucking terrifying. It's very cool. And a lot of that, the sound design it is the in sound the design. entire pod race yes. is amazing. The technical aspects of the movie are so good. I mean, there's other good stuff we don't even, because everybody already knows. Darth Maul is just badass. The music is phenomenal because it's John Williams and it's Star Wars. So yeah, the the sound design in the whole pod racing section, it's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, and it's also Ben Burt, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, that's like one of the only times in the whole movie that we get to hear his work without yes. music or other weird dialogue. Yeah, that was a cool choice, though. Yes, To do it was that amazing. whole pod race without music until the very, very yep. end. Because I think as great as John Williams is, music definitely is used a lot of times, especially these days. You go back and watch. I was just watching, because uh, uh, we've talked about Hitchcock before. You know, we just started rehearsals for the 39 Steps at the Greenville Little Theater. And Alan wanted to make sure we had seen the movie. And whenever you watch an older movie, what really captures my imagination about it is how much they don't use music, typically. It's only, it's used very sparingly, yeah. where I think a lot of modern movies it's all use it for everything. And the fact that that entire pod race is based on sound design and performance uh one of the sections where jake lloyd is not nearly as annoying as he is in the rest of the movie because <laughs> he's not talking and right. his face is mostly covered yeah pretty much yeah. but still there was an urgency to it even though they're going through the same track three times it never felt dull or boring or overlong yep. and you got the feeling that they knew this is going to be the only action sequence for a long time mm-hmm. So we better make it count and credit them for an action sequence in a Star Wars movie that does not involve ships, lasers or lightsabers and still worked. Yeah, I would like to read something that somebody on Reddit posted a few months ago Okay, that says what he is saying better than I could, but is a point that I like to make. Yes. About specifically the Jedi and the Sith, uh, because Anakin is supposed to be the one to bring balance to the Force. But of course, the Jedi are basically in power and the Sith are supposedly destroyed. Right. So why the Jedi would want balance in the Force, because that would reduce their power level, has always been stupid. Because balance does not mean giving you more power. It means balancing power, which would, in this case, take power away from you. Why would you want that? Also, you know, the Force didn't really seem a lot out of whack in those movies. Right. So It would have been different if things were just awful with the Jedi. And they're like, we need somebody to come and save us. So Things look pretty good for him. Here's a thing that somebody else wrote on Reddit. In the Star Wars subreddit, the user Twisted Kane wrote this. In episodes one to three, the Jedi are completely nuts. They created a galaxy where people who use the Force can't have feelings, emotions, or even parents. 
Right. Those that go against this are hunted down by the Jedi. Hunted down? I imagine... Not like hunted down and killed, just aren't accepted into the Order, right? I imagine this all stems from the Great War reference to have happened a thousand years prior. Oh, okay. The Jedi had their 9-11, where a bunch of Force users created all sorts of levels of chaos, which made them so desperate to avoid a repeat incident that they wanted to control every Force user. So they would literally take them away from their parents and force them into an isolated brainwashing facility on Coruscant, oh. which we've seen. The Sith, almost out of necessity, took an extreme opposing view to counteract the tyranny of the Jedi because it's exactly what it was. Tyranny. Right. This is where Anakin comes in. He was created from the Force itself, which is referenced in Episode 3, which we will get to when we talk about right. that scene. <laughs> As the ultimate weapon to destroy the Jedi. That's technically why Anakin exists. Right. The Jedi believe the Chosen One is there to end the tyranny of the Sith, not realizing that the true balance of the Force would mean the annihilation of the Jedi in their current state. Interesting. Qui-Gon, in Episode 1, makes it clear to Obi-Wan that he has issues with the Jedi Order and how they operate. It's assumed that he broke the rules of the Jedi at some point and explored a path of the Force that he was not allowed to explore, and that's what led to his discovery of how to return from the afterlife. Qui-Gon tries to communicate with Yoda, but Yoda's not ready or able to hear what he has to say until after Yoda loses to Palpatine. After right. Yoda finally listens to Qui-Gon and understand what balance actually means, Yoda passes it on to Obi-Wan at the end of Episode 3. And this is why, when Yoda and Obi-Wan are trying to work with Luke, they understand that they must change the ways of the Jedi, change what it means to be a Jedi. Luke is told to use emotions and reconnect with his father, which are two things they would never have previously taught a Jedi. So that's what actually turned Darth Vader when he realized that Luke, while claiming to be a Jedi... And exhibiting traits synonymous with Jedi in every other way was nothing like the Jedi he grew to despise. And that this new type of balanced force user was a better future than the path that Palpatine had set before him. Vader, after previously ending the old Jedi Order, then ends the Sith by chucking Palpatine to his death. The statement Obi-Wan made about absolutes was said to showcase just how blind and brainwashed the Jedi were to their own tyranny. They couldn't see the force through the trees. The Jedi weren't the good guys. They were the other set of bad guys. So when Yoda makes an absolute statement like do or do not, it's okay. He had already pretty much thrown out most of the conventional wisdom of the old Jedi Order at that point. That's awesome. I just wish I believed that George Lucas wrote it with that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I agree with you. I agree that it would be nice to believe that. But honestly, so much of the spirit of the Star Wars world now, so much more of it comes from the expanded universe that Lucas had nothing to do with except approving right. that that can be just as much canon as the original trilogy. Yes. Well, and you know, those kind of things are things I like to hear simply because they help justify even the existence of those movies and they help ruin Star Wars a little less. Mm hmm. Now, I personally do not think that it is ruined per se. I was never one of those people that said George Lucas raped my childhood. However, mm -hmm. he really, really tried. <laughs> I mean, he was outside the bar waiting for me and like tried to offer me a beer. And I was like, nah, man, you're just creeping me out. I'm going to go. But I was never like I never lost my love or appreciation for the original trilogy because of the prequels. I just had a problem connecting some of the events. And if other smarter people can do that for me, more power to them because George ain't ever gonna. Yeah, I spent a lot of time not spent. I have over the last 15 years or however long it's been, have spent a lot of time looking at fan theories and reading a bunch of Expanded Universe stuff because I still want to believe. Yeah. I don't anymore because I've seen all three of the prequels. Right. But I want to. I want it to make sense. But you know what? Uh, the same stories in the hands of another writer can still validate everything else. Yes. 
So a great writer, like some of those people have probably written some awesome Star Wars stories that help make the prequels make sense. Yes. The same way we were trying to make sense of something like Anakin building C-3PO. Right. That you just at first are like, this doesn't make any logical sense at all. And then you go, well, it's there. You can't ignore it. We have to make it make sense in order to continue the story. Right. It's what J.J. Abrams did with this new Star Trek movie. He's like, look, <laughs> it's an alternate universe. I go to that alternate universe theory so much now because it's just so easy. It's an alternate timeline. It's the same characters you love. It's just in a different timeline. Every time there's a cast change in a movie, you know, when Brady shows up in Iron Man 2, I go, oh, it's an alternate universe. Because I just to want it. to believe the mythology is consistent. Yeah. I'll tell you what has been consistent. The amount of time we've spent on episode one. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we've almost spent as much as time as the movie. As the movie. Yes. <laughs> almost. That was a long fucking movie. It really was. Yeah. <laughs> to be what it was. It was a long fucking movie. And you know what? I have never sat down to watch the Phantom edit where they took out Jar Jar. Um, I don't know that it would really impact me that much because I would still know the the problems. The other problems we've gone through exist. But the experience of seeing that movie in the theater was still kind of worth it. The oh, experience God, yeah. of hanging out with all those people waiting to get those tickets was yeah. worth it. And the experience of showing that bitch from that radio station that I actually knew my shit, that was totally worth it. Absolutely. So, because that's an inside thing. I remember. <laughs> uh, the radio people came to interview all the nerds who slipped out to get tickets to the Phantom Menace. And they were doing like a trivia giveaway of, I don't even remember what they were giving away, like a $10 It wasn't card. anything great. No, it was just something stupid. But of course, we're all nerds, so we're going to try to do the trivia because we want to prove that we're better nerds than everybody else. Absolutely. So one of, like the Not first... Not to mention the fact that we had been playing Star Wars Trivial Pursuit for a while, so we were yeah. ready. <laughs> yeah. So the first question, I think, was what is the first spaceship that's ever seen in a Star Wars movie? Like the first one that comes on screen. Right. Well, I know it's, the answer. I knew the answer then. Yeah. It's, it's a Carillion Corvette. Mm -hmm. So I say, like, I'm right next to her. <laughs> and I was like, it's Carillion Corvette. She turns at me, looks me up and down, rolls her eyes and goes, you did not stay here last night. Was she? Did she say Star Destroyer? No. The right answer is Carillion Corvette. And it's even I what know. she had on her paper because she didn't fucking know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Why did she automatically feel like she could be all supreme to you? I have no idea. I'm just idea. trying to figure out what she was thinking. I don't know, but she looked me up and I was like, you did not stay here all night. And I was like, uh, bitch, that is my sleeping bag. <laughs> and she never said what she thought it was? No, she said she didn't think it was anything. She had a piece of paper with the answer written on it. And so she was yeah. like, well, yeah, that's the answer. And I was like, yeah, I fucking know. Give me my $10 gift card or whatever the uh, hell yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, why is she all uppity when she doesn't even really know herself? I don't know. Cause she was a bitch. Yeah. Whatever. That's Showed weird. her. I don't remember that. Well, either way. It was still a great experience. I would never trade it for the world. Yeah. I would leave the movie just as it is because if that meant taking back that whole experience, I wouldn't. it wouldn't be worth it. Yep. So that's the first third of our dissection of the prequel trilogy. We will not be doing episode two next week because no. we want to make you guys salivate a little bit more because <laughs> I'm sure you wanted this one. And I have to work myself up to watch episode two again. I know. I don't even know. Law of Diminishing Returns I don't think applies, but... The more I think about it, the more Attack of the Clones is harder and harder to sit through. <laughs> it really is. Uh, well, I've Fewer only seen it twice. Well, so. moments. Really? Only twice? I, I saw it, it once twice. in the theater, and I saw it once when we got it on DVD, and I've never bothered to watch it again. Really? Yep. Interesting. Well, then, you get set for that because yeah. I've seen it way more than you have. I could, I could talk about it right now, but um, I'm not gonna. Good. Because I think... 
we're too exhausted to continue. Yeah. But we hope you guys have enjoyed this. Please don't forget to email us if uh, you have any opinions contrary to ours. I'm sure at this point, simply in the interest of being devil's advocates, there are a lot of people out there that fucking hate episode one deep down in their hearts, but tell everyone they love it just to be different. <laughs> if you're one of those people, email us and tell us why you're a liar. So, Carissa, yeah. how can they get in touch with us if they want to? Oh, they can email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Or you know, a tweet never heard either. That's true. Find us on Twitter at lucky underscore 10K. And uh, yeah, aren't we on? Are we on Reddit? Well, I mean, I post on Reddit. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand Reddit still. So um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to get in touch with us. Please like this and share it with your friends. Rate us and review us on Stitcher. We will read any five-star review we get, even if your five-star review is fuck you guys. We'll totally read that. That would be actually hilarious. I would love to it see a great. subversive review. Like, it's a five-star fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to hear you say to the world how fucking terrible I think you are. Five stars. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll absolutely do that. Sure. My comment is a five-star comment. Your show sucks. That would be hilarious. It would be pretty funny. But you know people do it. So thank you guys for listening. Carissa, thank you for putting yourself through watching The Phantom Menace again. I'm actually always, well, not always. I'm usually okay with watching The Phantom Menace again. Yeah. Well, sounds like it really falls off for the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, She's going to endure that hell for you guys. That's right. And we'll try to do the same thing with that format, I think, that we did tonight. I don't know which side is going to be harder. I think there's a lot more that people bitch about in episode one. But there's still a lot of stuff wrong with episode two. Yeah, we'll see when we get there. Yeah. So we hope you guys have enjoyed the show. And we hope you got lucky tonight. May the force be with you, nerds. Thank you for being a part of the Lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan and Carissa. Email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Find Lucky 10,000 on Twitter at lucky underscore 10k. And visit our podcast network site at beardedpodsnetwork.com.